Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. And I'm Po Ching Tang. Hi, welcome to the podcast this month. Uh, today we have an interview that Ava did with Dr. Catherine Wills from the University of Sussex. And this was an interview that Ava did when Dr. Wills came to speak at the Uppsala Antibiotic Center for a seminar on the 8th of November. Hi, everyone. We're very happy to have Dr. Catherine Will with us today in the AMR studio. Please, Catherine, can you introduce yourself to our audience and tell them a little bit of what you're doing and where you're at right now? Okay, so my name is Catherine Will. I'm a reader in sociology of science and technology at the University of Sussex. And I've been interested in AMR, uh, antimicrobial resistance, for about five years, maybe but recently got a very big grant to work on it intensively for the next three years. So what's your background? What did you study in university and how does the path has led you to AMR in the past years? Yes, yeah, so I did uh, a history undergraduate degree and then I studied in Germany in Heidelberg and I did more sociology there. It's like the home of sociology. <laughs> then when I came back, I did a master's in sociology and a PhD in a sociology department, but with historians involved. Mm -hmm. I then did a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Cambridge in Institute of Public Health and Anthropology. Mm -hmm. And then I was able to get a teaching job. I was very fortunate to get a teaching job, and that was in a sociology department. So at that point, I kind of imagine myself more as a sociologist because my day-to-day -day is teaching sociology but actually I have a very interdisciplinary background in the social sciences. So it feels like it took you some years within the sociology area to really feel like a sociologist. I, you see I don't think I feel too much yeah, like why, a sociologist. Why do you think you don't feel like well, a sociologist? I, I am but I'm an unusual one so one of the things that was very important to me and led me to do the postdoc away from sociology was that I was more interested in how this idea of what's social was created and made and changed over time and how it's used. So I found science and technology studies which is a cross-disciplinary area with history, anthropology, sociology and philosophy allowed me to ask that question without always like narrowing my focus to something that we called social, which I found difficult because to me as a historian originally, we don't divide up the world in that way. Mm -hmm. So for me, uh, science and technology studies gave me a bit more space to, Latour would say, like follow the actors or follow the technology and see where that took you. And sometimes that takes you to something that a sociologist would recognize as social, but sometimes it takes you quite far into something technical or scientific and I follow that, that's okay. Yeah, this, this is super interesting uh, to have you, especially here in the AMR studio, because our goal is to really show the people that, uh, well, AMR as a problem and issue is very multidisciplinary, but also to show the people how can you work in this, like in between different areas. So your example is great for that. So how, how did you get to AMR? How was uh, the path there? So my PhD research was on a technique for producing evidence in medicine, randomized controlled trials, and I looked historically at how that came into the UK and was incorporated into the way that the uh, United Kingdom organized both decisions about what appropriate medicine would be, but also what they would pay for. So I covered the rise of what we call the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence, which is a reimbursement organization. And I looked at what counted as evidence, so for the government and for doctors. 
So my PhD was very much about the link between certain forms of evidence and the production of guidelines. And guidelines were to discipline doctors prescribing in the name of quality, but also in the name of cost effectiveness. So having done that, I had this kind of quite particular interest and wrote about randomized controlled trials a fair amount. But I also was working on a drug called statins, which are widely prescribed to reduce the risk of coronary heart disease. So they involve thinking in the future. You're taking them to reduce your risk. They're preventative drugs, which is unusual, really, for medicines and very different from antibiotics because you don't usually have a particular problem that you think is a problem that leads you to go to the doctor. Very often the doctor picks up you may be at risk of cardiovascular disease and asks you to consider taking a drug. And the drugs are pretty safe, not all of them, but the ones that we use now Mm -hmm. are pretty safe. But you take one every day for the rest of your life. And understandably, people have quite mixed feelings about that. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of discussion in the UK about whether people would take those, whether they would continue them. So they might start them, but they might stop. And also the effect of some quite clear media stories about controversies about the evidence base. So the British Medical Journal has had very big arguments about statins and their safety, not only in general terms, but also about like, are statins safe for women? Are statins safe for older people? And these get reported in the media. And it's an expert controversy. It's not that you Mm -hmm. can say someone's challenging the safety of statins from a lay perspective, like, say, take vaccination. The experts differ. They really do. And there was quite a lot of discussion about how people would respond to those stories, including headlines like, you know, stories in the BMJ were taken as costing 50,000 lives or something. So the idea that people would die because they'd stopped taking the statins mm -hmm. because they'd read this story. So... Following my PhD work, we started doing work on ordinary people's understanding and use of medicines and quite quickly shifted from trying to understand kind of cognitive reasoning about medicines Mm -hmm. and what they might say in an interview, because Mm -hmm. you try and sound sensible in an interview. And we tried to look at ways of getting at what they did. So it's hard to do that Mm -hmm. with something, a drug that you take every day, but you can do it. You can ask people to show you things, to take things with you or to show how they do things. And you can look for where they're stored and what they look like. So quite a lot of our interviews in that period would have things like statins would be in the bathroom cabinet and we'd ask to see them and we'd find, you know, there were lots of them. So that idea of people not taking them could be shown by mm-hmm. looking around the home as well as asking them what they did. <laughs> so all of that, yeah, that's a roundabout story, but it meant I had an interest in both what counts as evidence in medicine and in policy, and both those things were very focused in my early career, and then this question of medication practice. So even though statins and antibiotics are very different kinds of objects, to me, I had a lot to bring to this topic. Yeah, in a sense, when you're explaining now the statins that they use as a prevention of a future problem, and so here is a little bit opposite because if the evidence would say if people stop taking the statins, so many people might die in the future. Mm. Now, with the antibiotics, we have the opposite narrative. If you overuse the antibiotics, so many people might die in the future yeah. from AMR. Yeah. So in reality, it is connected in the sense that you are have to take a decision now, what are you doing to see how in the future that would have been affected, yeah. right? Yeah. So uh, yeah. I do see the similarities. Mm-hmm. So what is, what is it that you are going to look into in AMR related to this? Okay, so... What I'm talking about today is just the way that the public health apparatus in the UK kind of approached this topic first. So in preparing to put in a grant, I kind of looked at what was being done right now, what sort of messaging there was. So the paper I'm giving today is very much about kind of communication. 
But that took me to wanting to do more research on more specific topics. So my belief is that they're focusing very much on trying to get to general, simple messages. And there is some value in that, but we're going to have to do more than that. If And that takes some of this thinking from our experience of climate change, which is another of my academic interests, mm-hmm. that when you have very simple messages, people understand them. But when it doesn't match their experience of reality, they then cast doubt on the whole thesis. So global warming would be mm-hmm. a really good example. So it was actually a colleague of mine who's now in Australia, Sajata Rahman, who we started talking about antibiotics and the links between the climate change story and the AMR story. And she's been interested in AMR for a long time. And yeah, we started kind of talking together about what would be appropriate messages. And then what I developed in the project that I've now got funded is asking, okay, what messages are we going to take to people who use antibiotics regularly and appropriately, but are going to experience both resistance, resistant organisms, very possibly, or are experiencing them, and also going to experience the effects of stewardship. So the question I've asked, and this is quite a sociological question, so it slightly surprised me, but (laughs) is uh, how do different mobilizations on antimicrobial resistance attend to questions of marginalization, inequality and social justice? So to what extent is our political, scientific and clinical activity to try and address or prevent, but it's already happening, so like delay, (laughs) defer, manage this problem? How far do those recognise the question of inequality and how do they respond to it? Because we know that infections affect different people you know, to a different extent. So particular groups in the population are much more likely to have certain infections once and many times because of practices or other life experiences or bad luck. But infections don't hit everyone equally. Some people mm-hmm. are going to be more at risk from AMR. And my feeling was if you take groups of people who are both being asked to accept stewardship and also face these increased risks, then you might get to some more interesting kind of nuanced talk about AMR that, you know, maybe is the next stage after these big, simple public campaigns like don't (laughs) overuse or something, superbugs, that kind of storytelling. And I think people have and the Wellcome Trust report is a good example, there's a kind of an acceptance that we might move away from apocalyptic stories, mm-hmm. scare people, make them feel it's too big for them to have any anything to do with it. But equally, now the move seems to be to these very simple like, antibiotics don't work for colds and flu, don't take them. But what if you have an infection that does need an antibiotic or that it might need an antibiotic and you need to think about well, what's happening there? The current messaging is very much trust your doctor. And Mm -hmm. I don't think that's myself. I don't think that's a good place to be with the messaging. I just think in this era, that's not helpful. It's not enough. So I think there's space for social science, but also discussions with clinicians about how we introduce this topic to people, you know, almost on the front line of AMR in terms of experiencing infections at risk of resistance and experiencing stewardship policies that they're all tied together. And how do we engage with, for example, patient communities who are at risk? So and the project will look at sexual health. So people at risk of gonorrhea in particular, where, you know, we have resistance. We're already doing a lot about that. But also urinary tract infections, where mostly there's an acceptance that one might have antibiotics for an infection. But equally, those people are having to live with messaging about antibiotics being a precious resource or being risky and not always sure what kind of infection they have or what the clinical story is. 
Mm, so as I understand it, what you are trying to get to is that the role of the patient, it's a, a bit greater when it comes to AMR and taking antibiotics. And it's not just a passive role that is like, okay, the doctor tells you take this antibiotic for this long and not ask any questions anymore, right? Do you think there is a role or there is a place for patients to actually actively take part of the decision of taking the antibiotics? Well, I think they do. I mean, that's what any sociology of medication practice shows you, is you can prescribe a thing, but whether or not it's taken is a very different question. And we found many examples with the statins of people reducing the dose of sharing with partners or giving them away or not cashing the prescription. And I don't think it's enough to just respond, they should do as their doctor orders. I just think that's not going to work. That's not how people operate. I think you can encourage them to be honest with doctors and have the discussions about the complexity of this in their everyday life. So it's not that I want to say people will do their own thing and it doesn't matter what the doctor tells them. Mm -hmm. There is trust or there is a desire for a relationship. But I think people are going to make sense of medication in their own ways, in their domestic setting, Mm -hmm. in discussion with family and friends. And uh, we should engage with those discussions and make sure that they are kind of attending to the complexity of AMR not just, I never take antibiotics or don't take Yeah, so they are able to, to understand the problem as a whole and the nuances of it and then be more present into the decisions. And if they decide not to take an antibiotic, it could be a, a really thought-through decision for whatever outcome they're looking for. I, I understand your point of view. That's very interesting, and I think it's a step forward that we have not really seen or thought about in AMR as far as, uh, as I understand. So it's uh, very, very interesting. So since you are in this, like, in-between waters of different fields and uh, probably you do work also with people of other disciplines in your projects, being sociologists, philosophers, historians, I would like to ask you, how does your perspective on the AMR issue coincide or doesn't coincide with other people, other colleagues you have? Mm-hmm. So... I think in science and technology studies, we would preserve a kind of doubt about some of the fundamental beliefs about the problem. So that's the first like interesting thing. So I, I, I'm not in my work at the moment taking a position on this, but in STS, it would be very common to say, you know, to look to the way in which it's created as a problem and to ask questions about, is that so? Mm-hmm. You know, how does that work? So that's one thing. The other thing I think is that we're going to share language, we're sharing this problem, we're coming together around this problem, and yet there's potential for misunderstanding. I don't find it so much about methodology. I think I have some experience, but also there are ways to have those discussions about Mm -hmm. my methods are different from yours. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. Let's keep calm. It's fine. But I'm finding it particularly in this project about language that's coming up. So I've had clinicians who are very, very concerned with inequality say, well, how do you define marginalization? Mm. And my interest actually is in understanding how they define marginalization because that's my topic. So trying to get that sense of giving a bit of time to hear their perspective before we all agree a shared definition mm-hmm. is helpful because if I'm exploring the politics of it, I need to understand how their categories matter. And I think perhaps my anthropology postdoc kind of comes in there because mm-hmm. I think of that then as an indigenous activity. Mm-hmm. They're professors of medicine, but they have their own terms and I want to understand their own terms. The other place it comes up is the question of stigma. So 
One of the research questions and the things I'm very interested in is whether and how people will experience stigma if they have a resistant infection that they are told about, that is diagnosed as a resistant infection. And that sometimes happens and sometimes doesn't. But um, when it does happen, I think there's a risk of stigma. But the clinicians also have a concept of stigma that they work with all the time. They have experienced the kind of history of the HIV AIDS mobilisation. So Mm -hmm. they are not innocent of social factors, right? They know about social factors. They know very well about stigma. They work very closely with patient organisations and activists. And they very often also are activists. Mm -hmm. They have these very close relationships in the HIV AIDS world. So when they say stigma, they may just mean something a bit different from the way I mean stigma. Mm -hmm. And I think that's interesting. So it gives us a shared language, but it creates potential kind of traps for mm-hmm. us because stigma is originally a sociological concept but has widely diffused as with many sociological concepts like it sort of moves into the world through the media and people use it all the time which is great but we need to be a little bit careful that we preserve some precision also when I write anyway about the particular terms so that's the first thing that we're writing now is how do we come together with the concept of stigma and what will stigma mean around AMR in a clinical context where it's well understood in relation to AIDS and HIV, mm-hmm. but it might be a bit different here, or not. We don't know. We don't know yet. So we, yeah. we're yeah looking forward to see what you get out of that study and those findings. So moving a little bit forward with this, I would like to ask you, even though you might not have been in the AMR world for you know your whole life, mm-hmm. but so far, what do you think is missing in this area? And what do you would like to see more track of or that as a scientific community or also as a social community, where should we be putting more emphasis on? So I think having you know seen a few of these issues flourish in academia over time, I can see there are risks to a lot of us suddenly doing work on it. And that is about the funding. So there have been funding calls in the UK, I think probably here too, and it's called a global challenge. And so people rush in, especially in social science, we can move quickly to a new topic. And I think there's a problem if we become detached from developments in the social sciences, like so to keep some sense of connection with those disciplines. That's, you know, there's an, a long debate now about interdisciplinarity mm-hmm. and how you preserve a sense of a disciplinary contribution or a kind of grounding in the discipline. So, yeah, it's like keeping the connections to your expertise or what you have to contribute, I think is important. And actually, I think navigating not so much relationships with scientists and clinicians because I think the division of labour is fairly clear mm-hmm. <laughs> although with clinicians it's interesting because they're very engaged with patient experience so there's a clear connection to be made with social science but actually I think with other social scientists somehow between social scientists there can be tension because you're actually trying to occupy the same space mm-hmm. so take psychology sociology anthropology I think very often we've made nice working relationships and the kinds of meetings and workshops we have held. But there is also potential for boundary Mm -hmm. tensions, which you can have in medicine as well, between different disciplines that might both have an opinion on how to treat a urinary tract infection, for example. So they're not new, they're not novel, but they are going to come up, I suspect. How would those be best handled, so to speak? I think just 
creating connections around actual projects. I don't okay, think it's easy yeah. to resolve them in the abstract or in advance. So by collaborating and by working with a common goal, that yeah. would be there. Yeah. And, and not shying away from perhaps some of those more difficult talks and close yeah. conversations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, when money's involved and grant getting is involved, there's always the potential for some tension. That's, yeah, that's of course. And true, especially, there's a lot of tracking also, you know about AMR a lot of people talk about it more there's mm-hmm. a lot of more money into it so mm-hmm. there's potential for this you know problems yeah so this is something we normally ask everybody what do you think is misunderstood about your field or your work and I know you already told me that you don't really feel like a sociologist so sometimes <laughs> when you talk to sociologists they might not understand your point of view can you tell us some anecdotes or some related to this so I'll talk about it in the presentation later as well but For me, it's about being quite careful about the space that we occupy as social scientists. And there is an interesting history, in my view, to medical sociology, which used to speak for patients very much, patients who weren't allowed to speak so much otherwise. And I think in the contemporary situation, there's a kind of threat to that role because patient organizations are highly you know, visible and they're invited into all sorts of fora, places. So that You can't just be a medical sociologist by presenting the patient view. That's not enough, right? There are other people who can do that for themselves. <laughs> so I think there has been a feeling that medical sociology might like present and explore uh, what we call lay beliefs. And sociology traditionally has divided the lay and the professional viewpoint, which is actually on the ground doesn't always hold that. Because <laughs> a lot of people have some medical expertise or a friend or a family member who holds that. So it's not as simple as the lay person confronts the doctor. It's there's like... always a share of knowledges, maybe. Yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's a mix. But um, for me, it's about kind of trying to create the space where we don't just present those beliefs and keep the cognitive kind of approach, but instead move to exploring practice, accept that that's kind of involves technology and material uh, relationships and environments. And yeah, that's a little different from some traditional forms of sociology, but I think on the ground can have some purchase on the problem. I think people know that the technologies are important, you know, the diagnostic technologies, or the, mm-hmm. but also the drugs themselves, right? the physical experience of interacting with medication. Yeah. And that is actually even larger if we think about hygiene, because one of the things that I think we have to do in stewardship is not just, you know, put the brakes on the prescription of antibiotics. And it's like the reason why you might speak to the public, actually, because in the UK, at least, you know, antibiotics are prescribed. So why are they telling us all the time as public yeah. not to use them? Um <laughs> They're prescribed. Yeah, but one of the ways to reduce the use of antibiotics is to reduce the infections or to reduce our feeling that we can handle an infection. Mm-hmm. Um, might be about recovering practices of hygiene or mm-hmm. reanimating some of those practices. And then I think, again, it's very mundane. It's not necessarily always through beliefs. It's also like practices, the doing, yeah. The mm-hmm. doing. Yeah, that's a very good point. So we are going to wrap up the interview. Is there anything that you would like to tell our audience now that you have free space to just tell them whatever you think they should be knowing or that you want to share with them? So the key thing I think that is part of my project right now and is very much on my mind is looking for nuance in the messaging around AMR. Not as a communications professional, that's not what I do, but trying to understand how to connect those messages with what actually happens on the ground. And I think the key 
Concern for me is the politics. So that's that's the word I don't think I used enough yet. So I'm <laughs> going to say it now. Right? Yeah. There's this ECDC, you know, focus on having European messaging. It's a global challenge. And it people behave as if you can, I like the welcome report, you can look at messaging in the UK, the US, Germany and Thailand and come up with solutions and advice on how to speak to publics. I just, I don't think that's going to work and I don't think it's appropriate. Even if we keep just the focus on northern countries Mm -hmm. like the UK or Sweden, people's experience of access and use of antibiotics is very, very different. And of course, you can come up with sort of general slogans about it. But at the end of the day, some people find it much easier to get antibiotics because they're trusted and others less so. Immigrants are subject to surveillance all the time in terms of infection and may not want, you know, this kind of medical involvement. So I think attending to difference, national and subnational, you know, ethnicity, migration status, in your risks of having infections and your ability to access treatment is really important. And that's the sort of politics of AMR that I'm interested in. So it's like tailoring even more how you tell the people about AMR and how they can be related to AMR in a very, very narrow way that it doesn't even, you cannot just generalize all across, you know, the Nordics or because within the Nordics, we might have people that confront or like are faced with AMR in different ways. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a very good way to uh, finish the interview by uh, yeah highlighting that this is This is very different depending on where you're looking into. So thank you so much, Catherine, for being with us today. It was lovely to hear about your work. And I'm really looking forward to see what the next three years of very in-depth work on AMR bring to us from your field. So, yeah, thank you for being with us. Pleasure. Welcome back. So, Jenny, you were both at her seminar and also have now listened to the interview. Can you maybe share with our audience what have you found most interesting about this? So I thought her general story of how she got into her work was really interesting and kind of how she talked about she doesn't really feel like a sociologist. She doesn't really feel like an anthropologist. She has this interesting, like, complex background with her thoughts in history and how she kind of contextualizes things and thinks about how did we get here. But I also really liked how she talked about, I mean, this focusing on communicating and communicating towards specific groups. And and especially in her talk, she brought up some specific messages that have been used in communicating AMR recently that just haven't really been enough, maybe have had laws or have been very trying to get one message to everybody, right? And I think one of the things she mentioned in this interview as well was this whole, just trust your doctor. And I know that's actually something we've said on this podcast too, right? Like you should just trust your doctor and it'll be fine. Listen to whatever your physician says. And she said, you know, it's really not adequate. It's not enough. So what do you think, Ava? Like, especially this trust your doctor. Yeah. So it's tricky, right? Because with the communication, and I think this is very nice that we're having this episode now, which is right after the World Antibiotic Awareness Week which is focused on increasing awareness and knowledge about AMR, compromises need to be made, right? How do you do it with communication? Do you want to have one campaign that tries to target everybody? Mm-hmm. Or do you want to have very more specialized campaigns that will be used in a specific context to a specific audiences? We're going to talk a little bit more about this in the new section when we actually review this uh, welcome report that she mentions in the interview as well about the best practices regarding communication of AMR. I agree with her. These ideas idea that just listen to your doctor and do whatever the doctor says doesn't really 
coincide very well with how humans work, I think. No. And it also doesn't really bring in, I mean, she mentioned that there are some marginalized groups that, of course, aren't treated the same by the same doctor. And that, I mean, for multiple reasons, there's it's not good, but that is what yeah. might happen. And I think that's just something I didn't really understand my privilege that I might be treated a certain way by a doctor. I've just assumed, oh, nobody's going to doubt my problems. Nobody's going to maybe... I think that was the most interesting thing about her interview and her work is that she's addressing something that goes beyond the basic understanding of uh, communicating AMR, right? Yeah. It takes on the thing that not everybody is facing infections the same way. Mm-hmm. Not everybody is at risk of infections the same way. Uh, not everybody sees healthcare the same way either. Yeah. So all of this variability needs to be taken in account when we work with awareness campaigns and also with stewardship in that case. Like mm-hmm. uh, stewardship as how do we prescribe antibiotics in this case she's talking about. That stewardship is not going to affect everybody the same way. Yeah. And I think infection control too. I mean, this brings us back a little bit to what Dr. Caroline King talked about in, yeah. an, er, mm. an earlier interview when we were talking about the stigma that people might feel because they've been screened and found that they do carry something with some resistant bacteria or something like that. That, that also comes into this kind of conversation. It's like, okay, now we know this about this person for now. Well, how are we going to give them information properly? What kind of message should they receive? If they see this kind of messaging against antibiotic resistance for a general public, like trust your doctor, like, okay, did I not listen to my doctor? Did I do something wrong? Yeah. I thought, mm-hmm. it, I mean, it's it's really interesting when you think try to think about it from this broader perspective of how at an individual level, people will actually interpret this information and what they will do with it and how they will feel and how it'll affect their, their trust in healthcare, among other things. And their decision to maybe stop by the treatment earlier that yeah. they should or to pursue it or how do they share that information further mm-hmm. with their other people in the society. It's all very intricated and connected yeah. as well. Mm. And Dr. Wills also brought up something in her talk more where she was kind of talking about how there's a tendency to oversimplify messages. There is a lot of jargon. You do need to simplify to a degree, but how much simplification do you need to do? And she was kind of talking about how in some ways there's now a push towards like, okay, we don't need the public to understand. We just need them to make the right decision for like from public health experts. And she was very hesitant towards this concept. She, I mean, she was very pro the public should be able to make their decisions and be informed and we should really work on like we shouldn't just manipulate them. Yeah, because it was actually, I remember that it was very puzzling, right? How she was yeah. saying that these campaigns, they look like they are giving the audience a choice but in mm-hmm. reality they are kind of guiding them into these two choices that they want them to make yeah. from so it's not the complete uh, picture right it's yeah. more like okay we steer these this is the information we're giving so we're putting them in, into the space we want them to be to take the decision right mm-hmm. but how much is that actually free will decision versus guided decision right yeah and I, I mean it was something that I haven't like thought of and maybe like if you just ask me straight off the bat it's like oh it's more important that the person makes the right decision but at the same time like you're completely removing the person's autonomy to make their own health decisions and you're not giving them credit in how much they can take but at the same time there's so much information out there there are so many problems that the world needs to handle how do you like how much information can one person handle yeah and how do you prioritize as a person right what is it more important in which problem do I have more say do I have more active action Mm -hmm. can I do something about it can I not so this is also it's looked into in this framing AMR recent work how do you actually not lose people's attentions and you keep them being interested and understanding yeah no, I, it was a really, the combination of this interview and especially the talk, which is too bad that everybody here can hear it, but it really kind of changed my perception a little bit on the messaging, which is something that we talk about a lot, but I hadn't really thought about it all the way through. Yeah, and I, as I said, I think she's focusing in one step forward uh, yeah. with this marginalization and how these different sectors are affected by mm. the communication and by the stewardship uh, regimes and measures. And So I'm very excited about seeing what Catherine is going to work 
working in this future three years and uh, we're going to come out of that is just going to do super interesting stuff and we're going to keep an eye on it for sure. And with this, we move into the news section, which today we're going to talk a little bit more in detail about the Welcome Trust report on mm-hmm. framing AMR. Which was mentioned in the interview as yeah, well. Yeah, it was yeah. mentioned in the interview. And also, we are going to just do uh, like what Jenny calls a report dump. So it's that time of year. It was uh, World Antibiotic Awareness Week. And the year is coming to an end. So all yeah. these like, big reports are coming out. So we are going to just like uh, do a run through what's been published. And of course, leave the link to everything. So see you here back in the news section. So welcome to the news section. We mentioned a little earlier, we're going to talk about a Welcome Trust report that came out. So Ava, why don't you introduce this report? Yeah, so this is, to our knowledge, I think the first in-depth research into communication of AMR and how the different messages around AMR might be more or less effective and looking, trying to find what works and what Mm -hmm. doesn't work and try to create some guidelines around that, based on that. So the work is titled Reframing Resistance, How to Communicate About Antimicrobial Resistance Effectively. And basically the underlining idea behind this is that facts by themselves don't really speak to people. Apart that they actually talk about like how numbers don't really mean a lot to people, but that facts alone don't say much. We know that AMR is difficult, we know that AMR is a global threat, but how do you frame this AMR issue? It's what will make people engage with the information or just disregard it and not pay more attention to it. Yeah. So the idea is that what are the frames around AMR that work and that can help us to communicate around AMR? So the objectives of this work are to find the most effective ways to talk about AMR for two main reasons. One is to increase the public comprehension of AMR, so we want to give the information out, but also to persuade the public that political action is actually needed because political action is going to, in the end, come by a lot of the public response to things. If we can have the public on the side that AMR is a global issue, that political action is needed to find sustainable solutions, we are most likely easier going to get there. So how can we engage the public and in return, the public will move, will create this political movement as well. This work was conducted over 18 months and it represents data from seven different countries. Of course, they couldn't really like doing in all countries, which would be ideal. But with these seven countries, they tried to cover the global north and the global south and include some differences related or around antibiotic consumption and underlining knowledge on AMR, etc. They did some desk research, they did some social media analysis, and they did both quantitative and qualitative studies as well, and focus groups, so talking to people directly about. Really covered a lot of bases on their methods here. Yeah, and the thing is that as it is today, there are some problems around how to communicate AMR, and they divide these problems into four main categories or sections. One of the problems is that we are using a lot of different terms, and that gets confusing because some people might talk about AMR, antimicrobial resistance, other people might talk about antibiotic resistance, other people might say drug resistance and infections. These and then there's the superbugs, apocalypse, all these kinds of... Yeah, so a lot of different terms and how people might understand those terms might also be different. Mm-hmm. Then the second problem is that there are currently multiple frames around AMR or antibiotic resistance or dry resistant infections. We cannot even like agree. Yeah, we what. can't even agree among us. <laughs> so the, these multiple frames, as you probably have heard about in the news, is like it can be around the apocalypse, you know, post-antibiotic era. It can be around who it affects. It can be about 
about that AMR has an impact in the economy and the medical system. It can be about how it's similar to global warming or climate change. So all these are different ways to talk about AMR and not all the ways might actually be taken in the same way. Yeah. The third problem is that there seems to be an uneven media coverage, which is actually fragmented and it's only seen through particular lenses, like for example, previous infections or specifical medical needs. Like a current outbreak. Yeah. And then the fourth one is that seems like this conversation, especially on social media, it is a specialist conversation. It's like us that we are interested already on this. We work in the area. We bring up this conversation. And it is also relatively low compared to other global issues like global warming. So it's relatively a small conversation and it's taking not so much space on the communication, the landscape. And it seems like only specialists and practitioners in the area are actually engaging in these conversations. So it's not something that a lot of public to public are mm-hmm. talking about it. It's more like we drive this conversation. We are like there, like knocking on doors and saying, but people by themselves in a dinner table are not talking about this. No. Right. Which is what you need for this public engagement and this political exactly. action to happen. So we want to now just briefly cover what are the findings. And through the findings and the research they did, they suggest these five main principles, overarching principles that can work across different communities and that can help us to engage the public in a more conscious way. So what are these five, Jenny? So the first one is framing antimicrobial resistance, and yeah, they here they use antimicrobial resistance, as undermining modern medicine, which is kind of a way to a way to kind of exemplify how it's going to affect us, not in terms of numbers or anything like that, but kind of something more that people will understand. You know, we've come to accept that certain things are parts of modern medicine, like hip replacement, like surgeries, transplants, C-sections, all this kind of stuff. If we frame antimicrobial resistance as something that's potentially undermining these things, or is going to if it continues as it is today, then it's an effective argument. And it's a way to really kind of connect to the people that you're trying to communicate with. The second principle kind of ties into what we talked about in this interview today. So it's explaining the fundamentals simply, (laughs) which I think here it gets a little bit difficult because what is simple? Mm -hmm. What is for what audience? Yeah, they mentioned like short explanations, factual, simpler and clear words. Those are the most effective. Mm -hmm. But again, what is simple? What is clear? What is factual? It might depend on the audience. I mean, they brought up a few specific things that need to be emphasized or at least, you know, you mm-hmm. can't like, simplify example, to the point. I like, for example, say bacteria or germs, don't say microbes because yes. m- some people might not really have such a like ground understanding of what a microbe is, right? It yeah. might get a little bit confusing. Is this a microbe? Is this not a microbe? Mm-hmm. Is this affected by uh, resistance or not? Yeah. And they also mentioned, I mean, it's important to explain that, well, here they do use the word microbes too, but it's important to explain that it's the bacteria, the microorganisms that develop resistance and mm. not individuals and that humans have an impact on antimicrobial resistance. These are like human things that they bring up that you can't really decrease to simplify the message. Yeah. And I think that's nice to have these kind of like, well, these these facts, like you cannot remove at all costs. Yeah, because you know? it is misunderstanding that is the body of the person that becomes resistant to the antibiotic, yeah. which is not that. So they also mentioned that when mm-hmm. you move away this idea, you also take away the blame somewhat. Yeah. Like it, you are not going to get resistant. It's not yeah. you. It's going to be always the bacteria. This is something also that should mm-hmm. be part of the message. Yeah, this idea that, you know, I never take antibiotics, so it's never going to be a problem for me. And that doesn't mean it's not going to be a problem for you if everybody else around you is overusing antibiotics. Do you want to go to the next Yeah, we're going to take the third one. So the third one is to emphasize that it's a universal issue and that everyone can be affected, including you. 
I think this was also interesting because they said that it's important that you make the message as a general one so mm -hmm. that a lot of people, that everybody is at risk. But that message, if it doesn't include a personal take on it, it wouldn't be as effective. That means yeah. you can say AMR will affect everyone in the world. But in the same sentence, you need to say including you because mm -hmm. that is like you are highlighting that this is a global issue that everybody is exposed to it. But then you take on the personal side of it as well and that the person also can be included because yeah. you kind of fall on the risk that if you tell that yeah everybody's at risk but then they see it like oh this is never going to happen to me right mm -hmm. but say so, you no know, everybody's at risk including you you are also at risk so this this is good to have it in mind when when talking about that in the report they talk about like a lot of the times these messages are saying that vulnerable groups will be affected mm -hmm. and it's really hard it's like okay well who's a vulnerable group am i a vulnerable group will i be one like yeah th like this kind older of older people a... younger kids yeah. And, yeah and they also talked about and that kind of ties into this one i think that numbers like we talked about numbers mm -hmm. are not effective they might be useful to include but personal stories and I think that's really where you get the personal side of it like really telling storytelling yeah we touched upon that in the podcast before and then the fourth one is that when we frame AMR about something that is going to happen in the future but in the really long future mm -hmm. people also lose sight of it right so the fourth one is focus on the here and the now because projections or catastrophic outlooks don't really work and this apocalypse narrative is also a very heavy one a very non-relatable mm -hmm. uh, so people don't don't really react positively to yeah. that. And we already talked about this before and it's been talked through several years that this is not working so they still put more emphasis into yeah. that this is not, there's a lot of skepticism about this apocalypse narrative. A lot of people think that this is somewhat of a clickbait so they just want mm -hmm. me to get into it because they use the apocalypse. No, this is not working so this is, I think this is something super, super clear. <laughs> we should stop talking about AMR in those rules. Do you think it's difficult though if you can't talk, I mean with growing problems it's hard to talk about it in the here and now and really emphasize that we need to do something now because it's just going to get worse. But I guess it's how much you include. I mean, you can say that, but it's so important to have the space of what's going on right now. Yeah, I think that's the idea. It's not only rely on telling them in 2050, 10 million people are going to die yeah. of AMR. It's saying those are the projections, but right now people are yeah. dying of AMR and you might need, uh, your parent might need a hip replacement next mm -hmm. year and that surgery might be at risk because there's already resistant infections happening. Yeah. So maybe if needed, have these projections included, but not rely on that as the sole message. Yeah. Just saying, now it's happening, what can we do about it? And that ties with the fifth principle, which is encouraging immediate action, which is really, you know, they mentioned that you need like a clear thing. Okay, well, what can your target audience do? Not just take action, but okay, what concrete action can they take? What can they do? What is within their power? And that really depends on who you're targeting with your message. That's something that they brought up in this report that some people felt when they saw some of these things. They're like, okay, well, that doesn't really feel like it's targeted towards me because I can't do the thing they're kind of telling me to do so I'm just not going to do anything mm -hmm. and I feel like that's something that we often miss in this, this messaging is really include I mean it's hard but to really try to include just a thing that the person can do if they care yes and this or I not think if they care it but. ties a little bit with in the special episode we have with WHO mm -hmm. that this year campaign is much more focused about what can you do now yeah. how can you help and in this case it's about you know having safe sex to mm -hmm. avoid resistant gonorrhea infections or washing your hands more often to avoid contamination yeah. all those things they might be simple but it's something that they can do we can mm -hmm. do so you can relate more and you can get involved in it as well yeah so it's really good that they mentioned and also it's the last one the point like yeah you are telling me all this stuff but you're telling me all this stuff for what what can yeah. i do about it so the end game that we all want is for there to be public action yeah and we kind of forget about that most of the time in the actual messaging itself yeah and also if they feel more active on it they are more likely to talk to someone about it that yeah. this is what we want right that the conversation gets going and people say yeah i'm washing my hands because of that or i'm doing this because i 
I heard about that. So that the conversation moves from someone telling someone what to do to the general public among themselves about this issue. Hmm. Yeah, That's great. So if we move on to the giant report dump. Yeah, so we will, of course, leave the link to this. And there's a lot of good material. There is like a toolbox. There is very good summary, the whole report, the extra. So it's like everything is open so you can have access to anything that you need. And if you are listening to us and you do work with Communicating AMR, I think this is a really, really good resource. So moving on to what I like to call our big report dump. Mm -hmm. So this time of year, especially around Antibiotic Awareness Week and it's the end of the year, a lot of big institutions and governments release these giant reports about new things and they love releasing them on Antibiotic Awareness Week. Which I don't think is very useful. I'm not a fan of that either. (laughs) I don't think giant reports are useful right now. Anyways, they're really good reports. So we kind of wanted to bring up a bunch of them. We're not going to talk about them in detail because like the Welcome Trust report, they're all open. They're all easy accessible. There's even some general news coverage of some of them. But I'd like to start with a few from European level. Mm -hmm. So we have the Antimicrobial Consumption Annual Epidemiological Report for 2018 from the ECDC. That one is, uh, as the name says, surveillance data on antimicrobial consumption. And then there's a surveillance on antimicrobial resistance in Europe 2018 report. That's also ECDC. And again, as the name says, that's actually looking at resistance surveillance and how much antibiotic resistance has been observed. And these tend to have some nice maps of the European Union region looking at differences in resistance levels. And you can kind of see how it's changing if you compare these maps over years. So some good information there if you're looking for that. There's also something that was brought up at European Antibiotic Awareness Day, a big survey on the healthcare workers' knowledge, attitudes, and behaviors on antibiotics, antibiotic use, and antibiotic resistance in the EU slash EEA. And this is the first of its kind survey really looking at, I think it was 18,000 healthcare workers across the EU and their knowledge, their perception, their feeling around antibiotic prescriptions and things like that. There's a lot of information in there. It's a good report. One of the biggest takeaways for me was that it seems like healthcare workers seem to know that guidelines exist. They know where to find them, but they don't always feel confident in them. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you completely agreed. We heard about this at the launch event for ECDC. Yeah. But there's some takeaway messages from this report if you're looking for more of that. Yes, and there are percentages. and yeah, There's a lot of percentages <laughs> and a lot of numbers, but it's a... And the idea is that ECDC, now having this knowledge, can direct how they communicate about this to healthcare workers in a more targeted way, in a yeah. way that will actually fill these gaps and these the areas where they see that there's not that much. Yeah. They set up the survey in a way that they should make it a little easier to implement target actions. Yeah. Hopefully it works. <laughs> Hopefully. So we'll leave a link to that one. Other side of the ocean, now we're leaving the European region. The CDC, so the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, released a report called the Antibiotic Resistance Threats in the United States in 2019. So this is an update from the 2013 report looking at estimated infections and deaths. So numbers, lots of numbers. Also looking at what actions have been taken and then looking at the actual infectious agents and dividing them into categories. So some of the most important infection-causing agents and saying which are a top priority, which are maybe a little lower. As well as, and crucially important, gaps that are slowing progress. Mm-hmm. So it's a good report. It's an update from an older report. It's really long, but it's also a summary. Also on that side of the ocean, we have a report from Canada called When Antibiotics Fail, the expert panel on the potential socioeconomic impact of antimicrobial resistance in Canada from the Council of Canadian Academies. So this is a slightly similar report. I think this is actually the first of its kind in Canada done mm-hmm. to actually look into what are the projections on costs and yeah. lives. So it looks uh, at the numbers yeah. on both economics and... Impacting healthcare mm-hmm. as well. And they also say that, I mean, they talk about a One Health Lens and recognizing the interconnected nature of AMR, which hasn't always been the case, but it's a very important issue for AMR that we use this. Yeah. Yes, and I can expect that this is done with the hopes that more political action is taken around AMR and yeah. more mobilization of funds. Yeah. We need the information first to then act type of thing. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, these are all big reports. They're all heavy. So, of course, you can't read all of them. But if you're looking for any information, these reports are very useful. 
a lot of new up-to-date information has come out. We can definitely update ourselves a little bit. Yeah, this is great. Well, with this, this is going to be the last episode of 2019. Yeah. I want to wish you all a very nice holidays, wherever you are going, mm-hmm. in, the, in the north, in the south, in the cold, in the warm. <laughs> and I hope that you continue being with us over 2020. Mm-hmm. We have already a lot of material for 2020. And we'll be back already in January. Yeah, 2020. beginning of January. No uh, wait for us. Yes. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah. Please remember that you can always reach to us. And if you want to leave any comments, if you want to uh, leave a review that could help people find us easier, please do so. We are always welcome for reviews and criticism as well. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For more information about the Upsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm. You can find a link to his Spotify in the episode notes.